Well, good evening, church. I'm still a bass rather than a baritone tonight, so praise God. We will get through this. Years ago, I was talking about gardening, and my wife and I were in another church, and I said, yeah, we have a, my wife and I have an agreement. I said, I, I buy her plants, and she kills them. <laughs> and um, I actually, I actually got an email back, said, that was just so rude. You just don't love your wife. You can't say things like that. And I thought, okay, whatever. All right, so. <laughs> Third John 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. <laughs> Sorry. Just as your soul prospers. And we, looked at, and we looked at three elements that define what it means to be healthy from the inside out. The first being authentic, of being who you are. And being confident that the way that God has made you is not defective, it's just different. And for some of you, it's real different. But that's okay. All right? Because you're just flat weird. All right? But God made you weird, and he loves you that way. Yes, all right? I'm not, I'm not validating the fact that maybe you're a sociopath, but I'm saying that God has definitely made every one of us just a little bit, just a little bit different. Everybody? Okay, here we go. Authentic. And, the, and, and, and being confident in the way that God has really made you and defined you, that you can live that way. And the second, then, is being competent. The fact that you feel good about that which you do, that we all are created under good works. It doesn't mean that we're all going to the Olympics. It doesn't mean that we're all going to, you know, we're going to be on The Voice. It doesn't mean that our names might ever be in the paper, but it means that God's given us certain things that we can feel good about, that which we produce with our hands. And then third is being connected. This speaks of how we do life with one another. And God has intended us to do this thing together with him and with one another, completely dependent upon him and vitally interdependent on one another. But I made this statement a few weeks ago, and I hope this one is sticking, that you cannot be a practicing disciple apart from community. It just doesn't exist. And once again, lock yourself in your room, get your little sleepy time tea and you, you know, your, your perfect music and your favorite Bible that's dog-eared in all the right places, and you can be a spiritual giant, let me just tell you. But it's not until somebody bangs on your door and your boss is calling you on the phone and your kids are beating, beating each other senseless in the living room, that's when you get to find out. That's when you begin to find out how the life of Christ is coming forth in you. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. And it's this place, community, how we do life together is where your discipleship is expressed. And the only way your life can reflect what you believe is in the context of community. You know, it's one thing to believe something, but it's another thing to believe it in such a way that you can express it with somebody else. It's, it's one thing to say, I love, I just love folk. All right, fine. Get, let them get up in your face a little bit then. I mean, let's, let's, let's get in community. Let's, let's get with what we say and what we do become one and the same thing. Somebody say amen to that. But tonight I want to continue on this theme, and we've heard some messages on covenant what does it really mean to be connected? And tonight I want to speak a little message entitled More Than Just Parts, More Than Parts. And I'll, I'll ask a question by way of introduction. But when we enter into any relationship, do we ask this question? Does this relationship add something to my life or does it help me become a better me? Let me ask the question again. 
does this relationship add something to my life or does it help me become a better me? There are books written about toxic relationships. There are articles, again, the listicles of how to find out if, you know, you are in life-giving relationships. And you see this all of the time. But aren't you glad that Jesus didn't use either of those as a criteria for his relationship with you and me? Now think about this just a minute. Did something get added to Christ's life that was missing by the fact that he added you and me to the family? Because if that's the case, then somewhere theologically, there would at some point have to be a deficiency in and with God. There was a book written some years ago that talked about how somehow God was incomplete until somehow his relationship with mankind came to be, until somehow you came into that divine relationship with him. Let me just tell you, that's bad theology. I mean, it might make a great theological romance if there's such a thing. The problem is it's just not good theology because God has never been deficient ever. Please hear me. God didn't make the world because he was bored or he wanted folk to hang out with. God was absolutely complete in and of himself. So God did not choose you and me on the basis of adding something to him. Or somehow God became a better God as a relationship of, by virtue of coming in a relationship with us. But how many times are relationships reduced to what I'll call self-actualization? That somehow that if I get in this relationship, that somehow it's going to add something It's going to give me something back. I mean, consider marriage for a moment. We all enter marriage with, once again, this romantic expectation is that you complete me. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, you complete me. Oh, my goodness. My life has just been, it's it's not even been 50%. And you just, you complete me. I don't know about you, but I didn't marry half a person. Are, are, are you hearing me here? And hopefully she didn't marry half a person. And yet you see men and women, and they, and they, and they come into marriage. Pastor Shaw and Pastor Donnell, they come into marriage, and they put this expectation on the other spouse that somehow they are expecting that spouse to do something with and for them that only Jesus was ever intended to do. And I know this is a strong, strong language, but it's amazing. You can commit spiritual adultery within your marriage. What do you mean? It means if you are placing an expectation on your spouse that only God can meet, you just put a demand on the relationship that should never have been there. And you see husbands and wives, and they wind up all jacked up, and they're all disappointed because, oh, he's not doing this, and oh, she's not doing that. Well, yeah, but how about you and Jesus? I want to talk about him. Hmm. We enter marriage that somehow you're going to make me better. Maybe, or maybe worse. I told my wife before we were married, and we were, you know, 
young college students, and I mean, we looked like young college students. I mean, it, it really, we, you know, she looked 12, and I looked like 12 and a half. Let me just tell you, very young in more ways than one. And we were in these, as, as deep a discussion as an 18 or 19-year-old can have. You know, you think you're really deep when you're in college, right? And you're covering all the ground. But I remember telling her, I want someone to take care of. It came out very early in our dialogue when we were dating. Now, I'm surprised she didn't tell me, well, then go get a puppy. <laughs> and probably, it, it, in, in retrospect, it probably would have been wise for her to have told me to go get a puppy. But she heard something that wasn't just misogynistic or chauvinistic, but that I was looking for something or someone beyond someone just to make my life personally easier or better. That I really was at a place that I wanted to figure out how can I enhance somebody else's life. And so through all of the, you know, through, through all the other stuff that I have enunciated to you before that she had to look through, she heard something there. And in 38 years of marriage, I can't say it's been perfect. But I'm still looking for ways to serve this woman. I'm not looking for her to serve me. I'm trying to figure out how to serve her. And so somehow it begins to work when that becomes the motivation. Are you hearing something here? It's why the vows often say for better or for worser. And marriage is something way beyond two people sharing shared space. The sum is much greater than the parts is what I'm trying to get to. Ephesians chapter 5 speaks to this, verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about what? Christ and the church. Real popular axiom today among you know, a, a younger generation, I'll stop, talk, I'll stop talking about the mills because they get real offended when I beat up the mills. But, um, but it's that they want to beyond, excuse me, they want to belong before they believe. In other words, they want to come together, they want to fit together before they even know why they're there. Now, I'm not sure that's a new phenomenon, quite frankly. I mean, I remember in high school, I didn't really care who was there or what there, if, if there were people there, I wanted to be there as well. You with me? I mean, I wanted to belong to something. I wanted to be in some group of some description. In other words, the desire to fit. And of course, this is one of our three criteria for health is being connected. And it's not just being connected, but it's fitting. It's not feeling like the little sister on the date. It's not feeling like, well, they had to invite me because, but it's like you really know that I am, I not only do I fit, but I am fitted into this place. But there's a process that we must understand and embrace for that because we all want to jump to the fit part. That's, that's when it feels good. Oh, yeah, this is my people. Yeah, I found my peeps. These are my, yeah. We want to jump to number three on the list. The problem is it's number three on the list. It starts with committing. You have to commit, then you submit, and then you can fit. This is how it has to work. 
and you can't get that out of order, it will not work. Commit, first of all, is that it's the first of commitment to self. You've got to decide something on the inside. I'm committed to this. That's something that's inherent. It's you keeping your word with you, quite frankly, before you can ever keep it with anybody else. Many times we, we always think about covenant breaking in the context of it happening with someone else. But many times you and I break covenant with ourselves. We do it all the time. I mean, we make a decision. I'm never going to say that again, eat that again, never going to do that again, watch that again. We make all of these covenants with ourselves and we constantly break them. So commitment has to begin with you and me. Secondly, then we have to submit. And that's when it's to one another. That's when it gets external. And then we fit. And can I tell you that this process applies to varying degrees across all successful and significant relational structures in our life. Your job. Your job. Let me just tell you, really successful employees, they understand this. You've got to make a commitment to this job. You've got to submit to that boss even if he is Pharaoh. You've got to submit to the rules in the office place and stop stealing the paper clips. It doesn't matter how punitive or stupid you might think the rules are, you still have to submit to what's going on in the workplace. And then at that point, then you can begin to fit into that environment. Friends, same way. Marriage, we've already spoken of. And then lordship. Let's talk about a significant relationship. What makes a successful disciple? First of all, it begins with a commitment. Does it not? Now, we always have these different understandings of what the entry point is of when we make that commitment. Is it a raised hand? Is it a trip to the altar? Is it a date? But it begins with a commitment that, one, he makes a commitment with us. That's where it really begins. And we make one with him. Here's the only difference. He keeps his. We invariably break ours. See, that's, the, that's, that's one of the fundamental differences between God and between you and me is that God cannot lie. He cannot break a promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. And yet, from the very beginning, man has proven himself to be a covenant-breaking part of the relationship, correct? So to the extent that we can even maintain covenant with God, God himself has to enable us to be able to be covenant keepers, part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Submission is commitment in action. Submission, you remember I gave you some big words on Sunday of justification, being our right standing with God legally, but then sanctification, being the outworking of that justification every day, us being less like us, more like Christ. Could I commit to you or just give you for a thought tonight that submission is the practical outworking of commitment? It's where the rubber meets the road is where that somehow there's a requirement that's being now put on that commitment that we now have to choose whether or not we're going to submit. Hmm. It's the essence of lordship. Motivation, married with action. And then we find a fit with him as one with him. And that three-step process demands something from you and me. You know what that is? Change. 
Oh, my goodness. Let me tell you, commitments, mission, fitting, and we'll talk more about those three, but it demands change. Bob Mumford, who is and really was one of the finest Bible teachers I've ever heard in my life, years ago was in relationship with God, and God was speaking to him, and this, this famous story Mumford tells. He said, Mumford, you and I are not compatible, and I don't change. And the reality is that very much is how it is. Human relationships, likewise. That word commit, it means to obligate, to bind, to pledge or assign to some particular course. And it's a lost concept for the most part. It's committing. Think about it. I mean, the native language of sin and the devil is what? Is lying. So we make commitments, and yet we may say something, we may even put it on paper, but all of a sudden when we have to submit to the commission, to, to what we have committed to, all of a sudden it's like, I can find me somebody to get me out of this. There's got to be a loophole. loophole. There's got to be some small print. There's got to be something whereby which I don't have to repay this debt, whereby which I can get out of this marriage, whereby which I can get out of this employment contract. I mean, so on and on and on. I mean, we've got quite an industry, quite frankly, that is developed around how do we get out of commitments. And I think you would all agree with that. And the native language of the devil is one of deceit and lying. I didn't say that or I didn't mean that. And ladies and gentlemen, commitment will always be expensive. It's going to cost us. In ways we cannot even imagine. Ways we cannot imagine. And relational commitments, the most expensive. Because we can't use financial terms like ROI, return on investment. So you can't, you can't enter a relationship. You can't make a commitment to any relationship thinking, I'm going to get back more than I'm putting in. Therefore, if I'm not returning 8% APR, however we want to measure that relationship, if I'm not getting a return on investment of my time, my energy, my commitment, then somehow I'm going to withdraw that commitment. And we see it happening all the time. Husbands and wives may be living together in the same house, but somewhere there's been a pulling back because they don't feel like they're getting their return on investment. Which takes me to the second part is the actual submitting part. And this is the costly part. Again, this is, this is where we see it really in action. Because submission many times, it, uh, it violates the head. Are you with me? The last time I checked, crucifixion was very bad for the body. Prolonged crucifixion will eventually kill it. Now, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious or diminish anything that Christ did on our behalf. But there's nothing about the cross that seems to have redemptive power in and of itself. It violates the mind. And yet, I heard a pastor say this many years ago, God will offend the mind to reveal the heart. How many times will he do that? 
I got to tell you, I get offended in my head a lot. I really do because it doesn't make any sense. And could I submit to you that most of the time, it's not you and it's not the devil that offend me. Most of the time, God's the one that offends me. So you're offended with God regularly. You know why? Because his thoughts are not my thoughts. And his ways are not my ways. So guess what? Wherever there's that conflict, there's a potential for offense. God, you're not doing this the way I want you to do it. You don't have the right people running this year. I'm sorry. I didn't even say that. I didn't even say that. Andrew, fix that, please. Just fix that one. But there's a lot of things that happen that we get pretty offended about because we're not God. But you see, that still doesn't negate the fact that we have to submit. Simply because we don't understand or we don't like it. I mean, think about your children in your household. I mean, seriously, how many times do they jump up and down? Yes! Broccoli! Laundry, yay, no dessert, homework, no. Somehow I just don't think that's their response. And yet what is the thing that you're trying to teach them is how to submit when it cuts across something in them. Look at the pattern of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverent what? Come on, submission. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We see a connection between something here. Submission and suffering. Ooh, don't even go there. But somebody needs to go there. We don't talk, we talk about the benefits a lot, but sometimes we don't talk about the cost. And submission has inherent in it a type of suffering particularly when it's getting real costly. Now, you and I have not shed any blood. You're here tonight. There are no martyrs in this room unless you're in a resurrected body. We have not begun to have done what Christ did. And Christ suffered every day that he had emptied himself of divinity in order to be endued with humanity. He suffered every day, not just, not just those last few days in the indignity of the cross. He suffered every day. And yet it was because of that submission that something was able to get transferred to you and to me. And yet it was costly. And this is where it really gets interesting because submission implies many things. Many times we think submission, first of all, it implies authority. Submission to authority. Okay? This is, many times this is how we see it. 
This is where people get to Ephesians and they get all hung up about husbands and wives and who's supposed to be, you know, calling the shots and telling who to do what. Well, if that's what you take out of that passage and you don't understand it at all. It's not about who's in charge. The question is, can and we will, will we submit when there's no threat of authority? I mean, I'm sorry, but if there's an authority and he, he represents a threat to you, he can arrest you, harm you, take something from you. That is submission under duress. That's not really submission. Submission at its purest form is not when something, you have the fear of something being taken is when you hand something over. See, this is one of the key things about you. We always need to remember about Jesus is that nothing was ever taken from him. He gave it. His life was not taken. He handed it over. There's a big difference in those two things. Submission at, it, at its root motivation has the essence of I'm handing something over to you willingly. Something worthy to be submitted to. Good luck with that. Someone worthy. Wouldn't it be great if we could find somebody among us who was worthy to truly be submitted to 100%? Husband, wife, parent, pastor, employer. The problem is because humanity is fallen and imperfect, we never find anybody that 100% of the time, 24-7, is completely worthy of our submission. Can we get real here? Come on. Thank you. The only person that really is, that, that ever, that, that, that can remain in that spot is Christ himself. And so that means that how, how submission gets worked out this way, it's going to become even more costly because we're submitting to those that we don't think are truly worthy of our submission. It's only one problem. Scripture doesn't make that qualification. Part of spirit-filled living, Ephesians 5, is really about life in the spirit once again. It goes and it says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. It doesn't say submit to somebody in authority, somebody living right. It doesn't say, it says out of reverence to what? To Christ. Is that maybe our submission to that person is, why in the world are you submitting to that fool? He's X, Y, and Z. I'm submitting to Christ by submitting to them. This is what gives relationships the proper context of why we do what we do many times. And then finally, once we have committed and we've, and we've submitted, then we can fit. But only then. And we want to start here. 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, chosen by God... You like living stones, plural, you're being built into something. What? A spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. It goes on and talks about Jesus as the chief cornerstone. You see, our stones, don't all, they're not always buildable in their raw form. Yes, we're living stones. But we come really jagged and irregular. And we need to be cut on. You know, even diamonds, if you look at a diamond in the raw, not much to look at. But it's not until that diamond is cut, chiseled, filed, and all of those facets are put on that stone 
that what's inherent in that chunk of coal really becomes apparent. You and me, like living stones, we really can't be built into anything until we get cut on. Many times we're saying, okay, God, wait a minute, Pastor Jim, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth now because you said it was all about me being authentic. But I also said that you were never going to know who you really are until you know who he is, which means you've got to submit to his process of forming you into that which he has seen in you from the very beginning. Guess what? That means he's going to put his hands on you. And sometimes the instruments and the tools and the circumstances that he uses, it's just like, wait a minute, that hurts. I thought you loved me. I mean, I'm praying in tongues now, and I'm reading my Bible once a week. Well, well I, don't, I don't understand. <coughs> I, I, don't, I don't understand what's going on here, Pastor Sean. Is that I'm trying to carve your stone so you can fit in with something else. You know, what a brick mason, if you've ever seen guys that do this, it, I mean, I got to tell you, I love the trades. I love watching guys that can frame a house or put shingles on a house or lay block. Or, and laying block has to be one of just the, one of the most mysterious things in the world for me. I've tried doing it. It's just the biggest mess you've ever seen in your life. Right. I mean, these guys can, can lay out that mortar and they can just reach behind them and slap that brick or slap that block on. And they can keep that thing within a 16th of an inch for 16 feet. I'm squashing it down, you know, and taking it up and putting some more mud down and squashing it down again. I mean, it's the biggest mess you've ever seen. But, you know, those brick masons are assuming one thing. is Every time they reach behind them and grab a brick or a block, it's the same size. It's the same size. We're not talking about a guy, you know, laying a field stone fence where every one of them is different has to find this unique spot. But he's reaching behind and he's building, knowing that every brick and every block is intact and it's strong and it's buildable. It begs a question for you and for me, are you buildable? Or are we so intent on being unique that we place a demand on the anointing to fit me in? Make me work. Pastor Robert, I've got a ukulele ensemble. Work me in on Sunday. <laughs> Hopefully you'll never be that unique. But our stones have to be carved on. Matthew 16, Peter, amazing revelation. Jesus, this is never going to happen to you. Not going to happen. What did Jesus say to him? Get behind me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It begs the question, then, are we stumbling blocks or building blocks? And what's the difference? Well, I'll give you two in closing. The first is motivation. What did Jesus define as a reason that Peter was a stumbling block? Because he had in mind the things of men rather than the things of God. You want to check your motivation at the door? Check it right there. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this for God? Or am I doing this for me? But the second is just raw revelation. Earlier in Matthew 16, I'm just amazed at the juxtaposition of both of these stories. 
Who do you say that I am? The Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, what distinguishes us is, one, the things of God, having those in mind. But secondly, it's revelation from heaven, the revelation of who he is. And your stone once cut, carved upon, it has to be carefully placed by God, not by you. We see men and women constantly trying to place themselves. Rather than saying, God, I trust you enough not only to carve on me, not only to get me buildable, but to place me where I want you to place me. Well, I tell you, that takes a lot of trust because we've got lots of ideas about where we'd like to be placed. God, Hawaii would be fine. Anywhere but in this job would be fine. We have all kinds of ideas. And you see, once this begins to happen, this is where these relationships become more than parts. This is where I want to go. Listen to me carefully. When we're rightly connected, buildable and fitted, the thing that we are part of is bigger than the sum of the parts. A marriage is bigger than just two individuals who've come together. It becomes something wholly other in itself. A church is not just a group of people that like to hear an African-American man sit on a stool and be brilliant every Sunday. Or they like, they like the way this room feels or the sound system or Pastor Robert and Pastor Tip. No, 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 no. It's that it's bigger than the individual parts. This is the mystery I believe Paul was speaking of in Ephesians. This is the mystery of how God joins, how God connects. It's that we get to be a part of something that's way beyond a couple of 19-year-old kids coming together in marriage. We get to be part of something bigger. Ephesians chapter 2, that you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Look at this. I mean, look at the heritage that we're building upon. We're not just building on some current vision and mission. We're building on all of this back here. Built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And let me say this. When you look at this building, there's only one stone that's supposed to stand out. Many of us are so afraid of our insignificance that we press forward for prominence. There's only one prominent brick in the building, and that's Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. It's not Pastor Robert's worship team. It's not Pastor Brett's church. It's not your small group. It all belongs to God. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises. Look at this. To become a holy temple in the Lord. How does this work? And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which what? God lives by his spirit. That's bigger than the parts. 
That's something mysterious. It's something supernatural. Every one of us long to be part of something bigger than ourselves, don't we? Come on. And yet God has given us an opportunity by being rightly joined and fitted together to become part of that spiritual house. And you see, the thing about this house, it's not just a temporal house, but it's truly eternal. And it's something that takes on the pattern of divine relationship, and it makes known to the world that they may be one as we are one, as Jesus prayed in the garden in John 17. Pray with me tonight. Lord, thank you that it's about much more than just the parts. Yes, you look at the individual, but God, you're looking at the house. You're looking at how all the parts jointly fitted together, every joint supplied. Lord, I pray tonight for every man and woman in this room that don't feel like they fit. And the enemy comes and tells us, sometimes on a pretty routine basis, you don't fit. You don't fit. But God... Help us work the process of first committing to you. Making a decision with us, I'm committed. Whether it's this marriage, whether it's this job, this people, whatever it might be, I'm committed. God, help me by the power of your spirit maintain that commitment. God, I submit to whatever the process might look like. And I don't like most of it. I don't understand a lot of it. But God, as a sign of that commitment, help me to submit to that which is around me. Demands being made upon me. That God, we might fit. That we are not misfits, but we are fit. Fitted, jointly fitted together. God, thank you for the privilege of being part of something divine, eternal, bigger than we could ever hope to be by ourselves. God, this is much far away and beyond. This is not just we're better together. That's true, yes, but there's something bigger. If you're here tonight, it begins with a revelation and a commitment to Jesus Christ. He's made one to you. He died that you would have life, and he's waiting He's waiting for you just to say, yes, sir. And if that's you tonight, slip your hand up. Being part of this great family begins with knowing who daddy is. Anyone at all. All right. Lord, thank you that you're God and we're your people. 